You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. So I'm just adding some electrolyte gel here to your scalp. How to understand consciousness, the internal mental experience of an external physical world. We begin with the brain. Full brain. And a half brain. As far as we know, biological brains are the most complex form of matter in the universe. The human brain, three pounds, 75% water, is the pinnacle. How to understand the brain? I start with brain structure. And so this is the, this white structure is the corpus callosum. And to do so, I return to my roots, the Brain Research Institute at UCLA in Los Angeles where 40 years ago, I studied the brain. It's really such a pleasure being with you here today. It's so uh, both nostalgic and emotional for me. That this is I'm Robert I'm Lawrence Kuhn, and this was, is my journey. Was started, and I, I owe it all to you. Oh, no, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I remember you well, Bob. You were an outstanding. I want to show you some of the components of it, because it really my first stop at UCLA is the lab of Arnold Scheibel, professor of neurobiology and psychiatry and former director of the Brain Research Institute. Arnie, I remember 43 years ago, I was a 19-year-old first-year graduate student, and I so looked forward to taking your course because it was going to give me an insight into how the brain was structured. How now, looking back, would you tell someone who didn't know anything about the brain what this remarkable three-pound object is? Well, Robert, that's exactly what it is, a most remarkable three-pound object. It's, it's unlike anything in the biosphere. It's unlike anything in the solar system. And so far as we know, unique in the galaxy. As you say, three pounds of tightly compacted tissue made up primarily of two kinds of cells, neurons and neuroglia, and of course 10 to 20 miles of blood vessels to <laughs> supply them. The cells have unique personalities and they're characterized by a group of structures which in a sense define them and if we were smart enough, would tell us what they were doing. Let's see, we have maybe several hundred billion nerve cells, maybe 10 times as many support cells we call neuroglia. And in terms of connections, synaptic connections... Between the neurons. Between the neurons. Oh, unknown trillions. So if we look at each individual neuron, of which there may be 50 or 100 billion in the brain, how, do, how many connections would each one have? Yes, it's, it's highly variable, of course. But we do know that in some structures, such as the cerebellum, an individual neuron 
may have up to 250,000 connections bringing information. And this means, of course, tremendous integrative capacity to the individual cell. Now multiply that out and you begin to get some idea of the options, the possibilities that the CNS provides. Wow, CNS, central nervous central system. Central nervous system, right. The brain itself is, of course, made up of two hemispheres, which make up the cerebral hemispheres, a brain stem, which is the continuation up of the spinal cord, and a little cerebral hemisphere in back known as the cerebellum. Now, what we see today is a system that is completely overwhelmed by the cerebral hemispheres. And an interesting thing about the hemispheres in terms of organization, if you look at the brain of uh, a rat, any rodent, or look at a, your cat at home, most of the brain, most of the hemispheres, are made up of specific areas devoted to certain kinds of experience, vision, audition, touch, and so forth, olfaction. As you go to primates and then finally to man, you find that these areas, while present, become relatively less important. They are overwhelmed by what we call association cortex, which spreads them apart and works with them and puts together, you might say, higher conceptual uh, images of what they originally brought Processing in. the sensory Processing. information. And here, I think, is the way our conceptual world develops. All right, we're talking about the cortex. Now let's describe the cortex. And when you look at the brain, you see these right. furrows and ridges. Uh, right. And, and uh, tell us how that, the cortex works, how big, how thick it is. Right. I think that's uh, very yeah. important. The cortex itself means bark. It is the outer two to four millimeters of highly cellular tissue. These cells are the neurons that make up the thinking parts, the behaving parts of the brain. Deep to this, and usually making up the major part of the volume, would be what we call the white matter. These are the fibers that bring information to cortex and carry information away from cortex. So here we have then a mass of tissue, both cellular and fibrous, which is both for transmitting information in and out and then for working with the information to produce the kind of behavior that uh, represents brain in action. If the brain were smooth, if your brain and mine were smooth like, like a rat's brain, it would be about three feet on a side, like oh, that, no. <laughs> yes. This brain, this gyrencephalic brain, even now, is just getting through the maternal birth canal. It is truly one of the most awesome experiences that you can have is to realize what this produces. I agree with you. Carmen Clementi, an expert on the brain, is perhaps the foremost living anatomist. The editor of Gray's Anatomy, he has been at UCLA since 1952 and has taught over 6,000 medical students. More important, if only to me, Carmen invited me to UCLA to do my doctorate in brain research. The year was 1964. 
When you reflect on the content of what you've done and have been involved literally with every aspect of, of the human body in its, yeah. in its most uh, intimate structure, uh, which is a, uh, a serious one in terms of teaching future doctors, but also it's, it's a personal experience because you're holding in your hands and you're seeing what, what we are. Yeah, yeah well, and yeah, I got that, it, yeah, I got that feeling when I was a student, uh, when I first looked at the first cadaver that uh, I uh, was assigned to set. I had a very emotional experience in looking at that man's hand mm. because it reflected to me all the possible things he might have done in his lifetime and the, the people he loved and the people who held his hand. Mm. And I was there dissecting it and looking at the 19 or 20 uh, little muscles that are in that hand. But the human body is uh, its a remarkable uh, work of art. And the brain, it's a magnificent uh, organ that controls every aspect of uh, of uh, human behavior. A magnificent structure, the brain. Carmen reminds me anew of my passion to understand it. I'm trying to remember the last time I would have been in that lab was maybe 1967. I hadn't been back to UCLA's Brain Research Institute in 40 years. Though on rare occasions, I've been back in my dreams. I meet my old professor, John Schlag, retired now. And we go searching for our old laboratory, which he hadn't seen in 20 years. And I remember very well that you worked during the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you, you, you wanted to measure everything. Yeah, right. And when we came in the morning, all the instruments were on. Yeah, right. The only thing you never used was the, the fire extinguisher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now there was a wall. Yeah, separated. that wall. That, that wall, so your yeah, office. Yeah, with a window. Yeah, with a window. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that was the office. It's now a storeroom, but once I enter, the shelving fades and the junk evaporates, as if in a science fiction movie. And I'm back in t-shirt and jeans, barely 20 years old, eager and naive, imagining I discover far more than I ever could. I remember my girlfriend then, my wife now, bringing midnight melted cheese sandwiches. And all that lay ahead, only memories to me now, not even dreams to me then. I'm older, probably not much wiser, as I recommence my search. Braving Los Angeles traffic, I drive back across town to Caltech to see Christoph Koch, one of the leaders in seeking the brain basis of consciousness. Christoph, we, we can see on a brain the different structures, the cerebral hemispheres, the cerebellum, the, the, the brainstem, uh, and anatomists know this very well. As a neurophysiologist, how do you relate function, 
things that they do to structure? So first of all, one big difference to computers, which we know very well because we build them, is that here, here you have different structures that are involved in different functions. So if you look at the CPU, you look at all the transistors, they pretty well all do this, you know, they look homogeneous pretty much throughout the central processing unit, the transistors are the same. And you uh, you do your spreadsheet, you do your taxes, you uh, play a DVD, you do some, uh, some complicated mathematical modeling like we do here, all on this exactly the same CPU. In that case, there's no simple structure function relationship. If you look at the brain, as you point out, you look at the visual brain, or you look at the auditory brain, or you look at the, 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 the olfactory brain, uh, they all seem to have specialization of different types of neurons. There are some commonalities, of course, but then the different neurons that are involved in different sort of computations. And many of these features, we still have no idea. So, for example, in the, in the central part of the brain, there's a, there's a structure called the endothalamus. And um, it re for example, there's a visual thalamus and there's a um, somatosensory thalamus. The visual thalamus receives input from the eye and then has, sends a fiber, sends a bunch of cables from the from the visual thalamus onto the visual cortex at the back of your head. It's like a relay station. Exactly. Except it would be a relay station. Except there's this strange finding that there are roughly ten times more fibers that go back from visual cortex to the LGN that's in the periphery than coming up. So this is a little bit ten like you, times. Ten times, yeah. So this is a little bit like you take a camera and you have a coax cable going from your camera into your computer, and then you have a much thicker cable that goes from your computer back into the camera. So so what is it doing? Well, probably not just a mere relay, because probably well, for instance, maybe the role of expectation. We know from psychology that when you expect things to happen you're more likely to see what you expect than the unexpected. When, I, when something suddenly happens, there are all sorts of illusions to show when you didn't expect something, you're less likely to, to notice this. Well, maybe Cortex sends down and says, okay, the next one, 10 seconds, I expect this thing to happen, and you adjust some sort of gains and filters appropriately in order to, 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 to help you see. So, so there are many aspects of the architecture that, that, that strike us as, well, there's got to be something really important here, but we don't really know yet what it is used for. So theoretically, that if, if we didn't have the, the feedback from the higher level down to the lower level, somehow the information would be, um, would be too raw. It, it, it wouldn't be properly selected or so focused on or developed. Yes, so perception is an active, it's an active process. It's an active process. It's not just that sort of I sit there and passively I let this information flow onto me and it automatically reconstructs itself. It's a very much active process. All of our perception constantly involves making assumptions about the environment. And we don't know, this is all sort of unconscious. It's not co conscious, it's all unconscious. We do this all the time. We make assumptions what's out there and by and large it works very well. Otherwise we would still be on the trees. Otherwise we would never have evolved out of the, out of the seed. The brain is not just receiving input from our senses. It's processing the input so that what we think we sense is affected by what we expect to sense. Mike Mersenich is a sensory neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco, who developed the basic science for cochlear implants which enable deaf people to hear. Mike is a pioneer in the hot area 
of brain plasticity. Mike, I've tried to keep up with the literature in brain science over the last 40 years since I got my doctorate, and I can't. No There's one can. so much. <laughs> well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> no, it's impossible. But I really try, right. and, and I'm just right. overwhelmed. I mean, the right. genetic work, the physiology, right. uh, the, the, the computational neuroscience. Right. Uh, how, do, how can we begin to get our hands around the, the, the whole question about, about how, how, to, how to understand the brain? I think it's point. getting beyond us in a sense. You know, I'm not sure anyone is smart enough any, any longer to integrate it all together. It's one of the great challenges we have because we have this incredible growth of information, especially about the details of process, you know, largely driven by an, a, a by reductionist science, you could say, that's really trying to get to the fundamental aspects of the molecular and, and cellular processes that contribute to brain function. And then there's also been a marvelous growth of brain science that relates to the operations of the brain as a controlling machine, as a perceiving machine, as a thinking machine. You know, historically, we thought of the brain as being something like a computer that developed its fixed processes and connections, neurons matured in very early life, and beyond that, early period, we had something that was operating with unknown algorithms, an unknown operating system in a sense, and we had to account for every marvelous thing the brain did uh, given those unknown processes. And now we realize that that's a complete misconception. To the contrary, the brain is a machine that organizes itself in detail. So what you see anatomically in early life is the establishment of the main trunk lines of the connections of the brain. But all of the little roads and highways and byways are not yet fully formed. And basically, they're formed on the basis of the acquisition of our skills and, and experiences. They're formed by our, by our using our brain. And our brain actually specializes in a myriad of ways. And that specialization accounts for the skills and abilities that define us, that define our personhood, that define what we can do, that, 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 and, and to the extent to which they're not engaged, that limits, limit us and define what we can't. You've pioneered this concept of neuroplasticity that, yeah. that is well, uh, a, a very critical understanding because the, the old accepted wisdom is that the brain doesn't change. Yes, and I think it's been one of the most exciting things that's happened is that we now have this completely different view of how the brain is operating. We now realize that the brain is actually remodeling itself, revising itself in detail. We understand that those changes are actually massive as we evolve in our abilities. And think of it, think of its power. I mean, each one of us is born with more or less a blank slate. And each of one of us requires an incredible array of operational skills and abilities, and then loads our brain with a mass of information in a dictionary that Google you know, has trouble matching, and then associates it in hundreds of thousands of information, hundreds of thousands of ways to generate the sort of elaborate behaviors that define each one of us individually as different from every other person that ever was and ever will be. I mean, it's an amazing resource we have that we carry around within our skull. All within our skulls, all throughout life, the brain remodeling and revising itself continuously ceaselessly. The plasticity of the brain is its power. For a different perspective on brain structure, I visit Rodolfo Linus, originally from Columbia, now chairman of the Department of Physiology and Neuroscience at New York University. 
Rodolfo, I want to understand the mind. To understand the mind, I have to understand the brain. And to begin with the brain, I like to start with structure. Right, well, the, uh, the easiest way to, to begin is to uh, remember what, what is it the brain really uh, does. Now, the, the brain um, has to make an image of external reality. Uh, and it does so by measuring very different things. For instance, light levels, and actually using eyes to make an image with a, with a lens, which is then goes to the retina. And totally different things, such as uh, the uh, vibrations of the air that may coexist outside with an object. Imagine having a bird on your hand, and you, I see it, it's a bird, and you see that um, it, it has a shape, it has a, a color, it may sing. Now, how is it that you can make a bird? How is it that you can put together this information that comes from all the senses into one element? Right. So, okay, so the anatomy of the system is done. It's, it's evolved, has evolved to be able to make internal objects. Internal objects. Internal objects. objects. So, and, so, and taking all these different modalities and making one. That's right. Okay. So, so, so the question is, okay, what do we know about the visual system? So we know photons get the retina, the retina goes to the thalamus, the central part, and then it goes to the cortex, to the visual cortex, and then uh, the visual cortex uh, separates color from position, from movement, and so on. So it's, it is like masticating reality. <laughs> chewing so it up. Chewing it up. Right? <laughs> but once you chew it up, you have to bring it back together. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So you have this system that projects from the central to, to the cortex, which is outside, this cortex returns to the beginning, to returns back to the thalamus, and the system is continually being recursive. The thalamus is in the center the of center, the brain, it's like a control center, right. if you and, will, and that's right. relay center, and control it's center. It's really not a relay center as follows. It, it, the information from the outside comes to the thalamus, goes to the cortex, returns to the thalamus, goes to the cortex. So there is this continuous vortex of activity, right? So it is continuously moving, continuously moving. It does two things. It mixes together, like in a mixing truck, yes. doing, doing uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, cement or something. It mixes up or puts together vision and audition and sense and tactile and keeps spinning, and, and keep in, spinning in, in this vortex. That, this is the vortex. It's not only that. It's, it moves at the same speed as reality moves. If, if imagine that we, you would make an image that was staying behind. <laughs> yeah. you, you would die. Yeah, right. <laughs> imagine a system was faster than you move. Bad also because then you know you, you will throw yourself to a net that doesn't exist. Right. So it has to be match reality. It has to match reality dynamically. So it is a system that internalizes and binds in time by coherence. Many. I, I tell my students, imagine that these cells were holding hands, dancing together. And by making these this, this, this forms, these geometries, represent reality. And, so, and it's, it's, it's coherent in time. It's, it's coherent in time, and the anatomy says green as opposed to blue, as opposed to black, whatever. Uh, high notes as opposed to low notes. So at every moment in time, the system is selecting from the senses the type of dream that you make. To me, one of the most beautiful ways to think of the nervous system is as an orchestra. Mm. You have an, in the center a director, a conductor that actually decides when the things come in, but you have the instruments outside 
all of them play at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they actually make an event, a musical situation, very much like we may make a movement, we may make a thought. It is produced by many things simultaneously with a similar rhythmicity in a fashion that when together they make a something that no instrument alone can make. And the director is this thalamocortical system right in the center. Absolutely. Not only that, music is machine language for the brain. <laughs> hmm. The brain as vortex, generating my inner self, my private sense of I. How is the brain structured to make this happen? At the macro level of brain systems, it's symmetry between sides, left and right brains are both similar and different, specificity in function, different brain areas do different things, and plasticity in development, brains remodel and revise. At the micro level of brain cells, it's billions of neurons, trillions of connections between them, and incalculable permutations of electrochemical communications. I chose to study the brain because only by means of the brain can we know anything at all. Take it from me, understanding the brain brings us closer to truth. Watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and God. Visit our website, closertotruth.com.